0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires
0: downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Hub and spoke. Audio collective. It was the first week of September 1776, and John Adams was losing two wars simultaneously. The first was large-scale and conspicuous. In July, the British had invaded New York, and the Colonials had to retreat into Manhattan, where they were... Ugh, what's the saying? Outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned? In charge of the British military effort were two brothers, Richard and William Howe. Richie was an admiral in charge of the naval arm. William was a general commanding the land forces. The Howes were, quite frankly, cleaning up. But from the time they were given the assignment, both of them had hoped they could end the war peacefully. They'd petitioned King George to give them diplomatic powers in addition to the military ones, but they'd only been handed the ability to grant pardons, which was totally insufficient. Admiral Richard had been in touch with Ben Franklin about how to make peace since before there was war, in 1774, and he knew that the colonists would spit in the eye of an offer of absolution, since they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. But after they drove Washington out of Brooklyn, the House had a lot of high-profile, high-ranking prisoners of war, which they thought might give them some leverage. So they wrote to General Washington requesting a parley, except... They refused to address him as general, and so Washington let their request go to voicemail. They next wrote Ben Franklin, who again told them that if all they had to offer was pardoning war prisoners, there was no reason to talk. But during the Battle of Brooklyn, the House had managed to capture the revolution's Major General John Sullivan, future governor of New Hampshire and a burner of Iroquois villages. The Howe brothers managed to convince their new war prisoner that actually the ability to pardon war prisoners sounded pretty worthwhile. They paroled Sullivan on his promise to head straight to Philadelphia to convince the Continental Congress to see the reason he now saw. The Congress wasn't happy at all. Franklin had already made his feelings known, and John Adams added his thoughts, which were that the whole overture was a trap a trick to take away the only just-declared independence of the colonies. But there were counter-arguments. Some of the founders thought that if they met with the brothers, they might be able to slow the British military, at least as long as the negotiations were ongoing. And if hostilities recommenced when the meeting was over, it'd be easier to put the blame for that on the British, which could help win over more people to the revolution, or at least dull enthusiasm for the loyalists. Yes, the House had little power to negotiate, but that was okay. It was only important that the Americans sent to meet them have even less. Which is actually kind of brilliant. So it was agreed. The Continental Congress would send a delegation to Staten Island, where Loyalist Christopher Billup would lend his house for the proceedings. Because they were moving behind enemy lines, the Americans would be given a British officer as a hostage for the duration. While the House only had the diplomatic power of pardon the three-man American delegation would have even less say. They couldn't do anything. Only ask questions and convey answers back to Philadelphia. Those three men would be Edward Rutledge, the youngest signatory of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams. However dubious Franklin was that the meeting would produce anything, Adams was far more so. He was downright hostile to the whole thing, and made no secret that he was only traveling to Staten Island on orders. Adams was known to be a crabby, opinionated miser, and his grumbling over this adventure began before they even left Philly. But it reached a pitch the night they entered Brunswick, New York. In Brunswick, there were only two beds available, in two tiny, cramped, dingy rooms. Rutledge was given the first, with Franklin and Adams left to share the other. The quarters were, by Adams' account, only slightly larger than the bed itself, with no stove, desk, chimney, or chair, and but a single, crucial, window. When they were ready to sleep, John Adams made the disastrous decision to close it. And like that, the Battle of Brunswick began. "'Oh, don't shut the window, we shall be suffocated,' Franklin let out, but Adams didn't want it open and told him so. They went back and forth, arguing over whether to open or close the window. Adams might have been known as a curmudgeon, but Franklin was forceful, self-possessed, and, uh, tedious, pretentious, annoying. God, I love him. According to Adams, Franklin eventually went off on a monologue of such length that it put the future president to sleep." winning the battle for Franklin, for whatever it was worth. The next day, they continued on to Staten Island, where the peace talks broke down within three hours. But it's not the revolution or the peace talks that we're here to talk about. It's that fight in the boarding room between John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. Because their argument wasn't just a tiff over personal preference. The Battle of Brunswick was just one fight in a war that was waged for literally thousands of years. The war over whether air was bad for you. This is the constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, in the air tonight. Parentheses, I can feel it. The lopsided debate between Benjamin Franklin and John Adams wasn't about comfort. It wasn't the choice between a room being either stuffy or chilly. It was, in fact, a debate about something you've probably spent more time thinking about lately than you would have anticipated a year ago. How does disease spread? Let's go back to the ancient Greeks for the umpteenth millionth time. They knew what disease was... An imbalance in humors, and that idea, humorism, which we've talked about many times now, carried through most of the Christian and Muslim worlds up until the 19th century. But humorism, as it was envisioned by the raving maniac Empedocles, was an incomplete theory for disease. The Greeks knew that if you were sick, it meant you had too much phlegm, or too little bile, or too much melancholy, etc. But that didn't explain why illness so often seemed to clump and spread among groups of people. If, for example, an Athenian man came down with a flu, that meant there was an imbalance in his phlegm. But if half of Athens came down with that flu, well, what was that? How did that imbalance get around? Hippocrates, one of the so-called fathers of medicine, knew the answer, bad air. He described this bad air as pestilence. As detailed by one of our other favorite go-tos, the Roman physician Galen, these bad airs bust with the natural humors of those that breathed them. Both had their preferences. Different bad airs had distinct imbalancing tendencies. Each bad smell tended to affect a particular kind of humor, but each individual also had their own imbalanced tendencies. With this idea, medicine now had an explanation not only for why a particular kind of disease got around, but also why some people were affected to different degrees. That gave the Greeks and Romans a fully functioning model for disease. Bad air, usually born from decaying plants, animals, or bodies, bubbles up into the environment and passes like a fog over a crowded area. The bad air has some sort of innate humoral effect. It encourages more bile to be made or thins the blood or what have you. When the people breathe it in, they get sick according to their own natural humoral tendencies. People who don't get sick or get less sick aren't as predisposed to that particular bad air. People that die, well, are. Or, put even more simply, bad smell make you sick. The term we're going to use as a shortcut for bad smell make you sick is miasma theory. But it's an imperfect term. Miasma is an ancient Greek word meaning something like pollution or polluted air. But most of the Greeks who wrote about what we call miasmas never described them with the word miasma. Nobody did really until the early 1700s. Up until then, what we're calling miasmas were described with a grab bag of words and phrases. Pestilence, putrescence, corruption... When the Black Death came to Europe in the mid-14th century, it was understood by most that it was caused by some variety of bad air, and physicians, philosophers, government officials, and more began putting out pamphlets—plague tracts, as they were called— to warn people of what to look out for and what to do about it. The oldest existing tractate, if not the first one, was printed on April 24, 1348, by Jacme Agramante, a Catalonian physician. At that moment, the plague had not yet hit Catalonia, but Jack May knew it was fast on its way and so wrote up a 14-page document to prepare his countrymen for the coming onslaught. He warns of fevers and abscesses, enjoins the Catalans to clean their faces, clothes, and hands to avoid crowds, move out of the cities when the plague arrives, and, maybe most importantly, keep a positive attitude. He recommends boiling drinking water, or better still, just sticking to wine. Hard agree, Jack May. He details a course of treatment that includes bloodletting, vomiting, blistering, eating vinegar-soaked pomegranates, and drinking theriac, a medicine composed of stuff like spices, wine, honey, sugar, opium, and snake venom, which I'm certain we've talked about theriac before, right? Yeah, okay. Finally, once you've done all that, Jack May advises you get on your knees and pray. Like you've never prayed before before all that he opens by explaining how the black death gets to you and the answer is through bad air maybe it blows in from another country where the people are trouble or else it gurgles out of unburied bodies or even from the rot of dirt itself but one way or the other the plague is born of bad air which corrupts the humors of those that breathe it that same year 1348 A whole bunch of people concurred with Jack May in writing. Other plague tracks came out shortly after, in Naples and Perugia, which point the blame in the same airy direction. More importantly, in October, the Paris medical faculty published a report, the report, really, on the Black Death. In the middle of the plague, King Philip commanded the professors at the academy to work out and write up a book detailing the cause, prevention, and cure for it. The cause, in a broader and more distant sense, the Paris faculty concluded, was the stars. On March 20, 1345, at 1 p.m., there was a conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars in the sign of Aquarius. Saturn and Jupiter together meant depopulation. Mars and Jupiter together meant pestilent air, especially because they were in a hot, wet star sign that the burning hot Mars would boil into vapors, not to mention that Mars was in retrograde and had been in the sign of Leo, which... (laughs) Well, you know, Leo, right? So anyway, that was what got the plague started, and can you fucking believe they still publish horoscopes in newspapers? In short... All this astrological mumbo-jumbo released a vapor from the earth into the air, which began to corrupt it, which turned the air bad and started the plague. Then the corrupt winds began picking up even more bad air from swamps and rotting vegetable matter and graveyards, and even from the night writ large, when air was particularly toxic, and spread all manner of bad airs through the countryside and into the cities. The report also talks about what we might call contagion, It acknowledges that some people were of the belief that the plague was being spread person to person, and then quickly assures readers that those people are wrong. It's the air you have to worry about, not the sick. A recurring question that I have to ask when looking into historical fallacies like this is, who believed this? Oftentimes, some idea will bubble up in the educated class and persist there for a long time, but without ever really seeping down to the masses. Other time, folklore and myth will carry a notion through most of the everyday world, but never successfully summit the ivory tower of academia. Miasma is one of the rare mistakes that pervades everyone. From peasants to kings, from the illiterate to the polymaths, after the publication of the report... Miasma ruled the fears of nearly everyone. And I mean, nearly everyone. This is going to be an incredibly reductive thing to say, but generally speaking, it seems as though almost every society that gets past blaming disease on curses and magic pretty much immediately moves on to something like miasmas. Most of the Middle East also bought into miasma, since the Persian and Arabian worlds were also deeply influenced by Greek and Roman thinkers, particularly Galen. In China, it went by many words, the most predominant being zhenqi, which is typically translated into English as, well, as miasma. Zhenqi goes back at least as far as the early Jin dynasty, around 270 AD. Zhenqi differed from Western miasmas in that it was believed to mostly come from bug poop, getting into the foggy air of the southern Chinese mountains. But aside from the very specifics, it too was bad smell make you sick. A very similar concept to miasma and Zanke pervaded throughout the Indian subcontinent too, and it's enough to make you suspect that you can't just blame Hippocrates for this one. Or Galen. Or even fucking Aristotle, whose writings are blessedly free of miasma. It can't just be coincidence that the majority of the world's population... Even those who didn't know or talk to one another believed basically the same thing and believed it for so long, more than 2,000 years, right? Bad ideas tend to spread like germs from one person to another and another and another, but miasma theory spread like, well, like a miasma, which, you know, doesn't exist. So what explains that? Like the grand conjunction of planets that the Paris faculty understood to be the genesis of the Black Plague clouds, miasma theory itself is a sort of perfect storm, the mingling of coincidence, half-truth, and human psychology. For starters, we have to put miasma theory in its proper place. The idea of bad air causing disease came about when any competing theories were decidedly worse. There were curses, yes, from wizards or witches, or from demons and devils, even from God himself. Maybe too much sunlight, or else not enough. Too hot, or too cold. Too dry, or too wet. Any of those were perfectly fine explanations for why a person might get sick. But none of them explained why the sickness would spread. Miasma did. And in concert with humorism and Galen's thoughts on susceptibility, seemed to offer a logical rationale for the relative arbitrariness of the way plagues spread through communities. And remember... The chief characteristic of a miasma was that it smelled bad. So the best way to avoid illness was to avoid bad smells. That causal relationship probably does the most to explain the extent and breadth of the theory's acceptance. Because what is a bad smell, if not our ingrained evolutionary response to something that might make us sick? Hell, what is the human sense of smell for, if not to tell us, Ooh, something's gross. We don't hunt by scent. We don't have the super sensitive olfactory sense of a dog who can draw dozens of individual substances from the air and recognize them at once. No, all our noses do from an evolutionary standpoint is signal, hey, don't eat that. We are constitutionally predisposed to accept miasma theory. Somebody comes along and says, bad smell make you sick. And you say, yeah, duh. Why do you think I threw out that cheese? Bad smell do make you sick. The smell of rot portends sickness, and so we are adverse to the smell. Even if you smell something and are grossed out enough not to eat it, you'll still get nauseous, because as far as survival priorities go, it is better to make you throw up than take the small risk that your last meal might have contained any bit of whatever you're sniffing now. Sure, you might say bad smells don't make you sick, and you're right in theory, but in practice, your body and brain adamantly disagree. On top of that, once people heard about miasmas and naturally thought they made a lot of sense, they started making medical interventions for miasmas, which, on occasion, worked. Take swamps, for example. Swamps stink, of course, and they especially stink at night. So once Hippocrates came along to tell you that miasmas caused disease, it was clear that something had to be done about the swamps. They were making new disease-causing miasmas every night sometimes you might be able to drain the swamp and if you failed at that like the president you might be able to move your house farther away or upwind from it and if you couldn't do that the first century roman architect vitruvius was full of ideas of how you might build your house to avoid miasmas coming into it and if finally you couldn't follow his advice you could at least do as john adams attempted that september night in 1776 bunked up with Ben Franklin, and close the damn windows. Of course, since miasmas don't exist, it stands to reason that they aren't made in swamps at night, and so none of those interventions should have accomplished anything. Except, wait, what does come from swamps at night? Right. Mosquitoes. If you drained the swamp, mosquitoes were left without a breeding ground. If you moved your house away from or upwind of the swamp, mosquitoes couldn't reach you as easily. If you shut your windows, then maybe, maybe, not too many of them would make it to your bed. And if you by any of those ways avoided getting bitten, then you wouldn't get the most deadly disease in human history. Malaria. Malaria. Huh. That's a funny word, isn't it? Wonder what that means. Malaria. Mal Malaria. mal-aria. Bad air. Of course, nearly everyone, everywhere, at every time believed in miasma theory. Not only was there no good alternative, and not only were they built to believe it all the way down to the amygdala, but believing in miasmas worked. Up until the turn of the 19th century. The miasma theory was three kinds of convincing. From the very first time someone thought it up, it must have clicked hard. By the time Hippocrates writes about it, it's likely considered common knowledge, and when Galen gets to it in the first century, it's as close to universally accepted as any medical theory might have been. But there were always detractors. The earliest document available to us now that proposes something like germ theory is the Shashruta Samhita, a Sanskrit medical text out of Kashi in the southeast of present-day India on the banks of the Ganges. We can't say for sure who wrote the Sushruta or when, but it very likely dates back to at least 600 BC and includes a section that lists a number of ways to spread disease, such as through physical contact, the sharing of clothes and food, and, um, doing it. In 430 BC, a plague descended on Athens, decimating the population, killing the political leader Pericles and ending the city-state's period of dominance over Greece. The historian Thucydides contracted and survived the plague, and his writing represents the most thorough and accurate view of events of the time. In his History of the Peloponnesian War, he remarks of the plague, There was an awful spectacle of men dying like sheep, through having caught the infection in nursing each other. This caused the greatest mortality. On the one hand, if they were afraid to visit each other, they perished from neglect. Indeed, many houses were emptied of their inmates for want of a nurse. On the other, if they ventured to do so, death was the consequence. So, that pretty neatly describes an understanding in Athens of person-to-person spread. The great Persian physician and philosopher Ibn Sina, also known as Avicenna, wrote the Canon of Medicine in 1025. Cena learned a lot from reading Galen, and so he was predisposed to the miasma theory, but he was first and foremost an Aristotelian, and he felt that empirically Galen's idea was missing something. He'd seen epidemics appear to spread person to person, and so amended miasma theory in the canon, writing that miasmas can be exhaled from the lungs of the sick into the lungs of the healthy. In the 16th century, the Italian polymash Girolamo Fracastoro treated a number of epidemics, including a large syphilis outbreak, ah, Italia, and conjectured that these diseases were spread by invisibly small spores that could be passed along through touch, air, or water. He is the first person to use a word you might have suddenly become familiar with over the last six months, fomites, meaning tinder. He described fomites as various generally safe things like food and clothes that could be contaminated by disease spores and become an avenue for contagion. The most colorful of miasma theory's detractors was Athanasius Kircher, sometimes known as Germany's Leonardo da Vinci due to his wide and disparate areas of study. Kircher's life is like an episodic adventure novel. As a young Catholic in Germany during the Reformation, he was chased through Europe by bands of Protestants who nearly killed him on several occasions, including in 1631, when he had a vision of the city he was living and teaching in, Würzburg, being set upon by armed horsemen. Soon enough, the horsemen showed up for real and seized Würzburg, which contributed to Kircher's reputation as a wizened astrologer, though he insisted he had not used astrology to predict the attack. He fled Würzburg for Vienna to take over Johannes Kepler's post as court mathematician to the Habsburgs. But on his way, his boat was blown off course, and he landed instead in Rome, where he took up a post at the Collegio Romano teaching math, physics, and biblical languages. He stayed there for the rest of his life, teaching and following his many, many hobbies, including building a cabinet of curiosities that was famous throughout the world. Kircher's first and perhaps deepest interest was in volcanoes. At one point, he had himself lowered into the main crater of Mount Vesuvius so he could sketch it as it began to erupt. He invented the megaphone, a self-winding magnetic clock, a wind-powered harp, a water-powered organ, a key for deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics. It didn't actually work, of course. But our Patreon supporters know him as the guy who allegedly made an instrument called the cats-and-clover a keyboard that supposedly drove hammers into the tails of captive cats, who were arranged on a chromatic scale according to their natural pitch. As you've probably gathered, Kircher's legacy is a bit of a mixed bag. But his work in germ theory is pretty impressive because he had access to something none of his predecessors had, a microscope. In 1646, Kircher became the first person to put the blood of plague victims under an adequately powerful lens, and the first person to see what he, and most other microscope viewers, termed animalcules in it. He concluded that the disease was caused by these tiny little worms getting into the blood via physical contact, the sharing of breath, and etc. He was only accidentally right, his microscope wasn't advanced enough to have spotted the bacteria that caused the plague. So what he'd spotted in the blood of the sick was the same thing he would have spotted in the blood of the healthy, had he bothered to look. Blood cells. Still, from his semi-erroneous observations, he coordinated a plan for stopping the spread of the disease, which included quarantining, burning the effects of the sick, and wearing face masks. Hey! You hear that, everybody? Athanasius Kircher thought that armadillos were the children of turtles that mated with porcupines. But even he knew you should wear a mask. But I digress. After Kircher, there were a steady stream of people who observed similar animalcules in the blood. Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the king of 17th century microscopes, who we talked about back in Let's Talk About Sex, Babies, reached the same conclusion as Kircher. The British botanist Richard Bradley called the things he saw in his microscope poisonous insects, and mapped out a pretty accurate means by which they accounted for contagious disease around the year 1720. By the late 1700s, all the pieces were available, and indeed, at least one person, Marcus von Plensis, put them together into a pretty much complete and demonstrable germ theory. But it hardly mattered, because in the late 1700s, everything changed. And for the worse. The Constant is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I'm back on the history of the Supreme Court, taught by Dr. Peter Irons, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at UC San Diego, because we're going to be covering some American political history real soon, and I need a brush up. I love this service, and I know you will too. The Great Courses Plus has an extensive course library, letting you educate yourself on nearly any topic imaginable, enhance your cooking skills, better understand your finances, improve your response to stress and anxiety, so much more. You can even use The Great Courses Plus to keep your kids learning math, science, history, and art from some of the best teachers out there. All of the content is objective, fact-based, and easy to access anytime and anywhere. Now is the perfect time to sign up for The Great Courses Plus, my listeners can check out any course or lecture for free today. That's free access to their entire library. Don't wait any longer. Sign up today using my special URL. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash the constant. That's TheGreatCoursesPlus, P-L-U-S, com, slash, the constant. And by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. This isn't self-help, it's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling, with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you need. What's more, it's available worldwide, with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like trauma, self-esteem, LGBT matters, stress, anxiety, or depression. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash The Constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash The A few months ago, Our Fake History's Sebastian Major and I had a wending conversation that we made available to our Patreon supporters. Oh, hey, that's two in-episode plugs for the Patreon. That's pretty icky. I don't like that. But also patreon.com slash the constant. And one of the things he asked me was, what's up with the 19th century? Because we both noticed, and we're far from the only ones, that the 1800s are just replete with bad science and cults and myths and medical blunders and everything it is that we like to talk about. Of course, all of those things exist always, but the 19th century really does seem to be a flashpoint for a lot of weird stuff. And there are dozens of contributing explanations for that. But for the purposes of this story, we're going to focus on two broad categories of change that took place between 1770 and 1830. Changes of density and speed. Speed could come up a few ways, but the main one is in shipping. There was no single technology, no one moment or inventor, to credit for the change sailing underwent in the late 18th and early 19th century. But change it did, especially British sailing. Over the whole course of time we're looking at, sails and rigging underwent constant incremental improvements. The English started plating the fronts of their hulls with copper, in the 1780s, which not only made them more hydrodynamic, but also cut down on weeds and barnacles that would foul up their running. Maybe the most important shift came after 1790, when English shipwrights started replacing wooden joints and bolts with iron ones. That made the masts and spars significantly sturdier. Before, if a strong wind or storm blew in, you might have to cut sails for fear of breaking the boat. But with iron reinforcement, big weather meant bigger speed. Researchers Morgan Kelly and Cormac O'Grata crunched the data back in 2018 and concluded that between 1750 and 1830, British sailing charters got 50% faster. That didn't merely mean that British freight ships could move goods faster. It also meant that they could move perishable things for the first time ever. Certain tropical foods, tropical drinks, and... Tropical diseases. Back to that in a minute. The change in density over this period may seem obvious enough. During the Industrial Revolution, large shares of rural populations were drawn towards urban centers. At the same time, advances in public health and early obstetrics led to a lowering of infant mortality rates and a raising of average lifespans. In short, a lot of people began living a lot longer in a lot less space. The exemplar of this trend was London. There had never been anything like London before on the face of the earth. It wasn't a difference of degree, but of kind. When London hit a million people in 1801, it was no longer useful to compare it to the likes of Paris, from whom it easily took the title of most populous city. Paris was a series of streets and buildings, cathedrals and towers, homes and bakeries and butchers and shops. London, was an organism. The people of 19th century London clung to the city like ticks to a shaking dog. The air was thick with smoke, cut only by the occasional acid rain. Neighborhoods were brambles of confused development where factories and poorhouses and hovels seemed to grow out of the pavement like infected boils, ready to break or burst under the slightest pinch. And everything, everything, was covered in shit. Actually, hold on a second, we'll get back to density and speed. But really, the most important things to understand about the turn of the 19th century all come down to shit. As population centers grew, they naturally produced more and more waste, which became harder and harder to remove. As London swelled with people, it also swelled with shit. Every day those million people were shitting in chamber pots that would be thrown into cesspools or out onto the streets. They were shitting in outhouses that quickly overflowed. They were shitting in backyards that piled high with teeming towers of excrement. The main method of removal of this waste was the night soil men, teams of four, who were hired to come by the cesspools at night and pull out the shit, bucket by bucket, into their wagons which they then rolled out of the city and either sold to farmers for fertilizer or threw into open-air dumps away from civilization. Except the city kept growing, and the night soil men kept having to travel farther and farther, which upped their wages to the point that landlords stopped paying for them. And so the shit stopped being removed altogether, or else it was removed at a cut rate from one place within the city to another place close by. And then, in 1775... A Scottish watchmaker named Alexander Cumming patented the first flush toilet, and it became an instant hit with the people of London. But there were no pipes, no sewer system to connect these stylish water closets to, so every flush just sloshed soggy gobs of feces all around the neighborhood. The effects of the shit-choking of London were precisely what you'd expect. One, there was disease everywhere, and two the whole place smelled like, well, you know. People already thought the two were linked. Miasma theory was the dominant medical doctrine for the last two millennia, but for anyone who might have doubted it, Thucydides and Ibn Sina, Athanasius Kircher, and Richard Bradley, 19th century London looked like proof positive that bad smell make you sick. The four great epidemic diseases of the 19th century each deserve a starring role in the tale of miasma theory. There's malaria, the greatest murderer of all time and the primary reason why people feared swamps and night air. Yellow fever, the other mosquito borne mass killer, came up through the Caribbean and ravaged American cities as far north as Chicago and New York, but took its greatest toll in New Orleans. Typhoid fever is one of the oldest recorded diseases, but it hit new heights in the 19th century, even killing American President William Henry Harrison just 32 days into his term. But as important and as awful as those three were, the real game-changer was the Mack truck of urban epidemiology, cholera. The cholera-causing bacterium called Vibrio cholerae is happy to hang out in its natural habitat, brackish and salt water in southwest India. There, it does mostly harmless bacteria stuff. Just living its life, reproducing asexually, and attaching to the shells of crabs and shrimp and oysters and stuff. Totally cool, totally chill, a real steely Dan of microscopic life. But, just like steely Dan, the danger comes from the host that consumes it. When vibrio cholerae gets into the intestinal walls of a human being, it's like that Dan fan who insists you'll like pretzel logic, or Asia, Or have you heard Two Against Nature? Alright, let's try Gaucho then. Man, I should have chosen a band I could play clips of. Well, whatever. You know what Steely Dan sounds like. Right? Oh, really? Oh, you're gonna love them. Start with Can't Buy a Thrill and... No, no. I'm sorry. Sorry. The point of my Steely Dan simile, well there are so many, it's a very versatile simile, just like Donald Fagan, and I'll tell you when I'm done with it, but one of the main points of the simile is that cholera, once it reaches the intestines, is prolific, just like the Dan, minus the intestine part. The bacteria divide and multiply at an astonishing rate and begin producing exotoxins that basically turn the GI tract into a saltwater aquarium. This salty environment pulls an unthinkable amount of water out of the body, through the colon, and deposits it as a ricey, white diarrhea. A person infected with cholera can pass six liters of water a day, with each movement carrying hundreds of thousands of bacteria. If people are around to ingest that rice water, then cholera is well on its way to becoming an epidemic. Luckily, shit-eating has never been incredibly popular. And now I'm done with my Steely Dan simile. Say you made a big Excel spreadsheet of every prohibition and law ever composed by each and every human society through all of time. What would be the first and most universal commandment across all people and ages? Thou shalt not kill? Not by a long shot. Most peoples started cobbling out exceptions to that one as soon as it was laid. Thou shalt not steal or rape or covet? Not even close. If you were adjudicating, all moral law, by how universally it was prescribed, then the ultimate and most powerful and important rule ever written must be, thou shalt not eat shit. The human aversion to ingesting feces is as wide and deep as any taboo there is. You don't even have to chip it into stone or put it in a sermon. We all know, viscerally and immediately, that poop is not for eating. And for most of human history, that anathema was enough to keep cholera from becoming a serious problem. Sure, every once in a while someone would eat some contaminated crab, and maybe their waste would find it temporarily into the water supply of a small town. There were outbreaks for sure, and you can find them documented in ancient India, ancient China, and ancient Greece for a start. But back then, cholera outbreaks burnt themselves out pretty quickly, because people didn't have the speed or the density to spread it. And then came the 19th century. With the British colonization of India and the opening of trade routes, cholera had a path out of its native home. The first epidemic began outside of Calcutta in 1817, where it quickly spread out all the way to Bombay on the backs of British soldiers, killing as many as a million as it went. Two years later, it was in Siam then Bangkok, then Manila. In 1822, it reached the Persian Gulf, Baghdad, even as far as Japan. The next year, it had made it into Africa, all the way to Zanzibar. By 1830, cholera had blanketed Russia, killing 100,000 before spreading to Poland during the Polish-Russian War. In the next three years, it found Paris, Detroit, New York, Philadelphia, and most especially, London. Malaria, typhoid, and yellow fever Each did their parts in buttressing the miasma theory of disease, but none of them could do the heavy lifting of cholera. Here was a disease that ravaged cities at their stinkiest. The grosser and more foul the area, the more likely you were to find people dying of cholera. London was full of two things, death and shit. And everyone knew it couldn't be a coincidence, which, of course, it wasn't, but not for the reasons they thought. Something had to be done. Enter... Sir Edwin Chadwick. Chadwick was born in 1800 Manchester. His mother having died shortly after childbirth, Edwin was raised primarily by his father, James Chadwick, a scientist and politician who made sure young Edwin was versed not only in knowledge but in social obligation. At 18, Edwin enrolled in law school at the Temple in London and passed the bar in late 1830. In 1832, he was appointed by the Royal Commission to work on the Poor Law to help relieve poverty. In 1834, he and Nassau William Sr. made up a report to rebuild the Poor Law entirely. They reformed the English parish system into what they called Poor Law Unions, with each district centered around a workhouse that offered aid, housing, and employment to those in need, basically creating the first modern welfare system. But soon enough, he fell out of the commission and turned his attention to sanitation. In 1838, London experienced a serious outbreak of typhus, and Chadwick argued to the Poor Law Board that they should appoint him, along with a team of doctors, to investigate the health and conditions of Great Britain. It was, incredibly, the first time that medical doctors had been consulted on public health. Unfortunately, all of them believed in miasmas. Chadwick, perhaps, the most of all. Sir Edwin Chadwick arguably did more to establish the modern role of central governance that we take for granted today than any other single person in the world. He forwarded not just welfare offices, but urban planning, public funding, and a host of other mechanisms that were necessary to the functioning of the technologically advanced civilization the UK was on its way to becoming. But unfortunately, he also inadvertently caused the deaths of untold thousands of people. In 1846, he gave his conclusion to Parliament. The top-line quote read, All smell is, if it be intense, immediate acute disease. And eventually, we may say that by depressing the system and rendering it susceptible to the action of other causes, all smell is disease. All smell is disease. All of it. Chadwick and his ilk didn't just lean on miasma, they built it bigger and broader than ever. A professor, H. Booth, writing in The Builder in July of 1844, went so far as to say, and I might as well quote him too, From inhaling the odor of beef, the butcher's wife obtains her obesity. No time to count the number of ways, that's wrong. We've got bigger fish to fry. Edwin Chadwick and his commission had concluded that the cause of epidemic disease in London was all of the shit, and they were right. But they figured the problem with the shit was its smell, and on that they were very very wrong. Their prognosis was to build a sewer system that would carry the waste away from London and into the fields as fertilizer. But to get there, the sewers would flow into the River Thames, the main potable water source for the city. With that, the smell of the city improved somewhat, but its health was a different story. All around the world, cities were ineffectively intervening to douse the flames of disease. In New Orleans, the smell of olives and burning oil was assumed not just to mask bad odors, but quench them. So, the city became littered with beautiful olive trees and not-so-beautiful burning barrels, all in a vain attempt to rid it of yellow fever. At least that effort was merely in vain, though, instead of injurious. Chadwick had partly succeeded in making London a more hygienic city, But whatever gains in health that supplied were undercut by the truth beneath his feet. The people of London were now more likely to be exposed to waste in their drinking water. The feedback loop was horrifying. The sick would evacuate waste from their bodies until they perished from dehydration. Sometimes the diarrhea was so bad that they desiccated in just a day. Then that waste entered the sewers, flowed into the Thames, and then into the pipes and water pumps around the city, where more fell ill and the process repeated. The politicians, physicians, and social reformers were in a similar feedback loop. As they scoured the scenes of these outbreaks for evidence, they only looked for signs of miasmas, and since the stink of London was positively ubiquitous, they never failed to find them. Each wrong answer only redoubled their confidence in the next one. In the whole of London, it seems there was but one person not under the spell, a Soho anaesthetist named Dr. John Snow. In Stephen Johnson's absolute jewel of a book, Ghost Map, he suggests that working in anesthetic was the key difference between Snow and the hundreds of other physicians with whom he disagreed. Snow's day-to-day practice was all about subjecting patients to a miasma of sorts, ether. And that experience didn't gel with what leaders like Chadwick and the head of the London census, Dr. William Farr, said. According to Farr and Chadwick and the other miasmatists, bad smell make you sick. But then why did you have people on the same block, in the same building, even in the same household, some of whom took ill and some of whom were fine? The miasmatist answer was, as we know, that some people were constitutionally, humorally prone to illness and others weren't. That explanation rightfully, left Snow wanting. His most nagging question, though, was, if cholera was caused by miasmas, why then weren't the cases clustered around their supposed sources? In 1849, London experienced a cholera outbreak that killed more than 10,000 people over the course of the summer. The source of the responsible miasma was widely debated. Maybe it came from the stinking River Thames, or else from the reeking poor of Soho. Perhaps the miasma bubbled out of the recently unearthed graves of plague victims from hundreds of years back. But none of that jived with Jon Snow. He thought you should expect to see clusters of cases around the proper source, around the riverbanks, or the graveyard, or the stinky poorhouses. He understood that when he put the ether mask over a patient's face, they passed out almost instantly. But even though he was standing just a few feet from them, he was fine. Because the ether diffused to a safe concentration in the open air, just like miasmas should. They shouldn't be blown around from one neighborhood to another, but blown away into nothing, lost in the endless expanse of sky. So if miasmas were the problem, they should have been exponentially more potent for those nearest to their source. Yet, the people who dredged the Thames for scraps every morning and the people who scoured the sewers for bones every day and the night soil men who literally shoveled shit all night weren't getting especially ill. Because, John Snow suspected, they were just smelling shit, not drinking it. Snow thought instead that cholera must propagate within the sick and pass from person to person via what we now call fecal-oral transmission. But when he took his theory of a single-cell disease-causing organism to the higher-ups, they said, You know
1: nothing, Jon Snow.
0: There! See? I did it. We got it out of the way, and now we can move on. You happy? You proud of yourselves? Because I'm not. God, that show fell right the fuck apart, didn't it? Some
1: of us love history. Others used to or never did, because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story.
0: John Snow needed proof, some large-scale, bulletproof evidence of his theory. In 1854, he got it. On August 31st, cholera came to John Snow's neighborhood of Soho. It was a severe outbreak, not only in the speed at which people were infected, but the speed at which they died. In just three days, nearly 130 had expired. In 10 days, that number was 500. Snow knew the area, knew its people and their habits— and knew that there must be a water source at the heart of the problem. So, even as SoHo was stacking high with the bodies of the dead and the healthy were fleeing to wherever they could escape, Jon Snow walked the streets, interviewing the sick and the families of the deceased. The intricacy and detail of his reporting would be a thing of beauty, if it weren't so awful. He dotted a map of SoHo with the incidents of the disease, and divided the map into sections, each centered around the nearest water supply. The correlation was beyond a doubt. The Broad Street Water Pump. Just a regular old public pump, known for its clear, cool, clean water. Snow wrote, On proceeding to the spot, I found that nearly all the deaths had taken place within a short distance of the pump. There were only ten deaths in houses situated decidedly nearer to another street pump. In five of these cases, the families of the deceased persons informed me that they were always sent to the pump in Broad Street, as they preferred the water to that of the pumps which were nearer. In three other cases, the deceased were children who went to school near the pump in Broad Street. Beyond these above-the-fold findings, there were several small anomalies which, upon investigation, only further strengthened Snow's case. Right across the way from the contaminated pump was the Lion Brewery, which employed the better part of 100 men, none of whom got sick. But the workers at the brewery didn't drink from the pump. They drank the beer they were making. He noticed that only a handful of people had died at the St. James Workhouse, which housed 535 people just north of the pump. He went to St. James to interview the director and learned that the building had its own private water supply. Two, actually, a well and piped-in water. So, of course, the half a thousand people living there had been safe. They'd had no reason to drink from the pump, even though it was right down the street. Maybe the most damning piece of evidence of all came from the Ellie Brothers factory, which made firearm cartridges not far from the Broad Street pump. Dozens of their employees had gotten cholera, which snow chalked up to the large tubs of water on the premises, filled, obviously, from the pump. But more notably, the Ellie Brothers' mother had also died from the disease, even though she didn't live anywhere near Broad Street. When he asked the brothers about it, Charles and William said that even though their mother had long ago moved to Hampstead, she had always thought the Broad Street pump's water tasted best of any in the city, and so her dutiful sons regularly had jugs of it sent to her. Snow's conclusion was unassailable, and the officials of Soho, more desperate than convinced, finally acquiesced and, on Snow's insistence, removed the handle from the Broad Street pump. By then, the outbreak had already crested, in part because the initial source of infection had likely started to dry up, and in part because so many people had left the area. But cutting off access to the Broad Street pump finished it off entirely. Later, Snow was able to track the exact vector of the incident. On the 28th of August, just three days before the first signs of the outbreak, the five-month-old daughter of Sarah Lewis had started emitting the telltale rice water stool of cholera. Sarah called for a doctor beside herself with worry. In barely no time at all, the baby had died. But in the meantime, Sarah had spent the last hours of her child's life soaking the soiled diapers in a bucket of water, wiping her down, keeping her clean. And then she had taken that bucket and thrown it into a cesspool at 40 Broad Street, which led directly into the cracked bottom of the well below the Broad Street pump. It's so obvious, isn't it? I mean, not just through Snow's work, but just in the basic mechanics of the disease itself. Of course, a sickness whose main symptom is to cause such terrible, massive, watery diarrhea is spread by the very same thing. The cold germ that gives you a runny nose travels by snot. That cough is airborne, herpes spreads from its sores. How could it have taken, until 1854, to conclusively work out something so seemingly self-evident? Well, it didn't. It took a bit longer. After Snow's full frontal press of a report and the ostensible success of removing the pump handle, he and his conclusion were roundly denied and ignored. The Broad Street outbreak was a blip on the way to germ theory upending miasmas, an important blip in retrospect, but not much recognized at the time. John Snow suffered a stroke and died in June of 1858, just a month before the next big event that finally won over some of his loudest critics. In July, London was hit by a heat wave that lowered the water level of the Thames and cooked its exposed waste in the heat of the sun. It was called the Great Stink. And it was intolerable. The miasmas of the Great Stink weren't limited to down-and-out areas like Soho. The very seat of British Parliament sat right on the ungodly stench of the river, and they weren't having it. Even if it wasn't spreading disease plumes, which most believed it was, it was still super gross. Here, finally, miasma theory cleared the way for its own demise. To clean up the Thames so that it wouldn't barf out cholera clouds, London authorities turned to Joseph Bazalgette to build a new sewer system that would move wastewater out of the city without mixing into the river. Six years later, there was another cholera outbreak in London, killing 5,600. But the outbreak of 1866 was confined almost entirely to the East End, one of the only places left in the city that hadn't been hooked into Basilgate's outfall sewer system. Instead, the East London Water Company discharged sewage just half a mile downstream of their water intake. When the tide rose, the wastewater was carried into the potable supply. Even Snow's chief critic, Dr. William Farr, had to admit that he had been wrong. Then there was Louis Pasteur, and after that, Robert Koch, who isolated the pathogen that caused anthrax. They both did a lot to move the scientific opinion towards germ theory. And one day, we're going to have to focus a whole episode on past year, so remind me of that in I don't know, six months or so. But probably the most important people for moving popular opinion away from miasmas and towards a world where it was okay for John Adams to leave his window open were Gilbert and Bennett, who owned a small factory in Connecticut. There, they made mesh sieves, like you use to drain pasta. And they also made a finer, small sieve tent, which you could put over plates of food to keep bugs out. One employee at Gilbert and Bennett suggested painting the mesh to rust-proof it and selling it to be put over windows, to keep bugs out of houses entirely. Evans and co. put the idea to widespread practical use in 1869, advertising The annoyances of spring and summer, such as flies, mosquitoes, dust, etc., can be obviated by using the wire window screens manufactured by Evans & Co. Annoyances. Annoyances. That's all mosquitoes were to the people of 1869, because nobody knew that they carried disease. It wasn't until 1881 that the buggers were identified as the main vector for yellow fever, and the conclusion that they also carried malaria came soon after. In the meantime, the rates of both diseases were mysteriously cut by people looking to make the night air not safer, but less annoying. But wait, we're not done yet. And we're not done in a pretty terrible way. In 1910, Dr. Charles Value Chapin, Superintendent of Health for Providence, Rhode Island, published a book entitled The Sources and Modes of Infections. Chapin was understandably frustrated by the continued belief in miasmas long after they had been debunked. In the sources, he argued forcefully against that superstition, asserting that germs were the cause of disease, not the air. Good so far. But in his zeal to finally put miasmas rightfully to bed, he made an overcorrection. He argued that germs were spread by physical contact, food, or animals. That's it. No airborne transmission at all. In fact, he wrote, It will be a great relief to most persons to be freed from the specter of infected air, a specter that has pursued the race since the time of Hippocrates. Again, Chapin was half right. The misapprehension of miasmas had dogged humanity since Hippocrates, and it was a relief to finally be rid of it. When Chapin wrote the sources and modes of infections, he was on the cutting edge of epidemiology. He had protected Providence from cholera outbreaks through the 1880s and would soon do the same, to some degree, for Spanish flu. Chapin recognized that the fomites, identified by Fracostoro, were the primary transmission vector for most respiratory diseases, the tiny little flecks of saliva or mucus that spread on door handles and tabletops and such. And that perspective became dominant in medical science even until today. Unfortunately, Chapin didn't have the tools at his disposal to understand that some germs are spread via aerosols, invisible clouds of expectorate so tiny that they float on the air, miasma-like, sometimes for hours. Aerosol transmission smacked too much of miasmas for Chapin, and since then, his prejudice has been carried on de rigueur, even when data becomes almost as convincing as Jon Snow's. And yes, I'm talking about COVID, And no, I am not a doctor or an epidemiologist. I have vacillated back and forth on whether and how to approach this conclusion, given that I have both a platform and a lack of expertise. But I am in good and increasingly robust company when I say that there is very good reason to believe that COVID is being transmitted by aerosol, even while public health organizations like the CDC and WHO seem allergic to address this possibility. I think that reluctance largely comes down to the old, and appropriate, allergy the medical establishment has against miasmas. But it is not serving us well right now. It's September, and schools are opening up and then immediately closing down. The narrative for explaining why colleges can't keep themselves safe from COVID is that the students are behaving irresponsibly, not taking the threat seriously, not social distancing, not wearing masks. If all those dumb 19 year olds would just stop going to keggers, then universities could work. Leave aside for a minute the impossibility of the ask, that everyone cheats and bends the rules, especially over the course of time, and that public health measures have to be designed along the is of human behavior, rather than the ought of perfect strategy. What is at least as likely an explanation for these fresh outbreaks is that all of the prophylactic measures around masks and distancing and spacing and shields and disinfectant are insufficient because this disease is spreading by aerosol. And that means that if someone is shedding disease within a closed space, it is likely to infect anyone sharing that space. If that is the case, The only hope we have of slowing transmission is to avoid sustained periods of time indoors with others, a precaution which I personally feel is a necessary one. If for some reason you can't do that, then at least you should follow the nattering dictums of Benjamin Franklin and make sure to keep your windows as wide open as possible. Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Ver, Kevin McLeod, and Blue Dot Sessions. I don't know if you've heard, but we've got a Patreon site where you can support the making of this show. Go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. For $2 an episode, you'll get access to the secret feed where bonus episodes, interviews, and such like are waiting for your eager ears. Or give $5 an episode and get a special thanks at the end of a future episode, like these beautiful people. Bill Kirkpatrick, Amanda McMall, Kathleen Kerber, Michelle Picard, Christian Braun, Kim Ruff, Ein Sophie, Tom McCool, that can't be real, Daniel Berenberg, Edward OFerowitz, Johannes Meyer, and Lane Lovick. Thanks to each and every one of you. Have I mentioned you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts? Probably some other places, too, like wherever you listen to us from. You can also find our social media presences via constantpodcast.com. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, the Boston-based home of smart, informative shows like Open Source with Christopher Leiden, the world's first and longest-running podcast. On the latest Open Source, Chris interviews Kurt Anderson, author of Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History, an account of how we let a powerful clique and its enablers turn a quintessentially modern and reasonably fair political economy that led the world into a freakishly old-fashioned and unfair one. Check it out wherever you listen. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Evans & Co., Screen Windows, which was located just two blocks away from the Gathman Torpedo Boat Company. Hey, maybe they could have put a screen door on the submarine. This has been The Constant.